Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. They tore down our church, so they did. Piece by piece it was lorried away. Stephen Walsh's massive stained glass windows went first, and then the roof, leaving his magnificent mural of the risen Christ exposed to all the elements for the first time in its 54 years. From the day demolition started last October, until the last of the dust blew away, people clicked onto the Fingless Memories Facebook page to view a demise which had started many years before. Over 4,000 people filled the Church of the Annunciation in Finglas West for the final Mass on the 7th of October 2018. I wasn't there for that, but I was there for the first Mass as an altar boy on the 8th of October in 1967, when it opened its huge doors and Archbishop John Charles McQuaid himself came to officiate. It was never an attractive building. Built during the Archbishop's church building binge of the 60s, it replaced the much-loved tin church, which could no longer cater for the growing congregation. In the old tin church, we'd all huddled together. Children sat on mother's laps, Men knelt on one knee in aisles and latecomers lined up six deep at the back, increasing its capacity of 750 souls to only God knows what. In the tin church, we were never lonely and never cold. From the turning of the first sod in 1964, we had watched the new church grow behind our tin church. Up and up it went, grey block upon grey block, until it towered over its humble predecessor. By 1967, the new Church of Denunciation, with a capacity of three and a half thousand, towered over all of Finglas West. The spire shot boldly up into the heavens, announcing itself and becoming the community's landmark. Many had a love-hate relationship with the spire, as it came at a terrible cost when a young apprentice, Dermot Connolly, an only child and not yet 19 years of age, fell to his death while working on its surrounding copper. At the base of the spire, a recording of the bells in the Vatican would blast out from the massive speakers calling the people to prayer twice a day and to Mass on Sundays. No more would the church sacristan or altar boys have to swing from the rope of the single bell to remind us of our duties and no more would passing school children be tempted to run over and have a swing for divilment. It had all mod cons, including a soundproof crying room with a big window where children could be seen and not heard. But with the massive church came massive debt. Our parish priest, the late Father Dennis Daly, informed the parishioners they should consider it an honour and privilege to take on the debt. Boxes of envelopes were distributed to each home and Father Daly urged each wage earner not only to give generously every week, but to make a sacrifice for the church. His call did not fall on deaf ears and an army of volunteers came forward to collect envelopes containing the few shillings from their neighbours each weekend. And another army was recruited to assemble in the local school hall each Monday to tear open the envelopes, count the cash and record the donations in huge ledgers. Our envelope collector was our neighbour, Fred Geraghty. 
Mr Geraghty was a mild-mannered, modest man who quietly walked from house to house for decades, accepting the envelopes. He might stand and have a few words if the person handing over the envelope offered them, but if not, he gave a gracious thank you, a smile and a nod, before slowly walking down the path and closing each gate quietly behind him. If the door wasn't opened when he knocked, Mr Geraghty was not one to knock harder or knock again. He knew the score and moved on. In our home, to keep Mr Geraghty waiting at the door while you searched for a few shillings to slip into the envelope was akin to a mortal sin. As the years went on, regularly in that church I froze at weddings and funerals, including the funerals of both my parents. The church was big and cold and always hard to love, yet here I am, an atheist, saddened by its destruction. Because now I live in County Sligo, and on my infrequent visits by train back to Dublin, my heart would always beat a little faster as we raced along the Royal Canal, through the Ashtown Level Crossing, and I prepared to catch sight of that grey, unattractive building. Just as a plough can lead the lost traveller to the North Star, the huge church on the horizon would lead me to the very house where my late parents reared their five children. While religion left me a long time ago, the Church of Denunciation still managed to show me the way. It was always agreed in Wexford that the festival shortens the winter for us. Not only did the festival imbue us with that sense of anticipation and excitement that did indeed shorten the winter, it ensured that Wexford was way ahead of other Irish towns and accepting that men from foreign places would arrive amongst us for those glorious October weeks and walk the streets of our place holding hands. Are them lads back again this year, the locals would inquire, decades ago and long before any liberal attitude prevailed elsewhere. We learned not only how to live and let live, but to positively delight in that which was different, unexpected, never seen at other times. The lads were indeed back, quietly demonstrative in their affection, wrapping long knitted scarves around their necks, protection against the weather they evidently found harsh. Because I worked in a little leather shop on the quay, I used to take particular note of the beautiful leather bags that hung from their shoulders. Tan leather, so soft and tactile. We knew nothing then of man bags and we wondered what exotic contents might spill from these pouches. What could these striking strangers be carrying with them? My hope that one day they'd come into that little leather shop where I worked was never realised. Many strangers did indeed frequent that sitting-room-sized emporium where bags and belts hung from hooks on the ceiling. One customer in particular has stayed with me for many decades. I picked up on her disconsolate demeanour 
as I unhooped a tumble of merchandise for her. Her gaze was unfocused and distracted as she fingered the wear, adding item after item to the pile she intended to purchase. The selection was random. Wallets, a glasses case, an elegant and very expensive clutch bag, a music case and a satchel that made her look like a schoolgirl as she tried it on cross-body style in front of the shop mirror. When I told her this, it brought a wan smile to her lips. I'm no schoolgirl, she intoned, her voice melancholy and wistful, and I'm not sure I've learnt a hell of a whole lot either. As I wrapped up the purchases, she said, would do for Christmas presents, she told me that she was from Limerick. Neighbours had inveigled her to come with them for a few days of the opera festival. I don't feel well, she mumbled vaguely. They said the change would give me a lift. I was too young then to understand the import of the words spoken by a woman who was in her sixties, the age I am now. I wondered at the disillusionment of a woman who could hand over a fistful of notes for an array of luxury goods. A woman who carried the weight of her unknown grief like a boulder. A boulder she let down for a while as she sought a bit of respite amongst the shades of tan and mottled, oxblood and cognac. I can only hope that the festival did indeed give her the promised lift. I hope that she found it in her heavy heart to join the heaving throngs on the quay front for fireworks night. That exploding pyrotechnic sensation when the lit up sky caused our heartbeats to thump and our eyes to shine with the wonder life might hold. No matter what darkness lodged heavy in her soul, the evidence that life could burn with coloured flames and explosive shades of red, orange, purple and silver couldn't but heal with redemptive grace. I hope she lifted her shining eyes to the heavens to delight in showers of falling stars, fountains of light, peony roses, chrysanthemums and Catherine wheels as they crackled and burst over us, bright with wonder. She came, dispirited and sad, to our festive town. I hope that as the fireworks took her out of herself, that she too hummed along with all of us, reaching back into memory for La Donne Mobile or O Mio Babino Caro. I hope the lads were there too, the exotic strangers in their knitted scarves, the men who were blessed with love. Sempre un amabile, leggiadro viso, impianto e riso. 
It seemed inevitable, once I decided to write a book on history's most seismic first nights, that my first port of call should be Dublin. Few cities have packed in as many premieres of mayhem and magic as Dublin, and few countries have funnelled their tensions and rages through the theatre as greatly as Ireland. Maud Gons' memorable entrance in a doorway in Yeats and Lady Gregory's Kathleen Nehulan is one of the all-time first-night moments. The argument and dreams of its authors, the hunger and need of its audience, and the expressive capacity of a charismatic figure all coming together in one stark image. The first abbey was a cockpit of fantastic imagining and bitter truth, and within its wooden clatter were played out the passions of the emerging nation-state. Here Playboy fireworked into life, roared along by a brawl confected by Yeats, who had invited a group of drunken Trinity students along to make mischief. Yeats was at the centre again 15 years later, when Plough and the Stars opened and he stood on stage and barked at a seething mob, You have disgraced yourselves again. Yeats could be said to be a connoisseur of the riotous first night, having attended the legendary brouhaha of Alfred Jarry's Ubouhoir, in Paris. He clearly had a taste for chaos. My initial weekend of research in Dublin was spent in discussion with a number of academics talking about why the city had a propensity for concocting the broth that boils over and spills out onto the grate. My last conversation was with the theatre scholar Chris Marash. At the end of our delightful chat in the National Library, he pressed into my hands his book A History of Irish Theatre. I read it and discovered that on Kathleen and the Playboy and the Plough, he had got there first and unimprovably. His overall narrative studded with short chapters summoning up the excitement and the drama of each first night. I was, in literary terms, gazumped. Happily, he had left Handel's Messiah, a first night which survives into my book, or rather a first midday since the oratorio began in Fishamble Street at twelve, to leave the audience time for a gargantuan Augustan supper afterwards. Nine hundred folk crammed into the great music hall, a number only possible after an advertisement was published requesting the ladies to appear without their hoops and the gentlemen without their swords, a request which throws up any number of Freudian interpretations. In discussing Dublin's propensity for the volcanic premiere, each academic offered a different historical or linguistic or sociological theory, all brilliant and acute. But I kept being brought back to an observation I had once heard. By a stroke of immense good fortune, when I was young, I acquired an extra mother and father in Maeve Binchy and Gordon Snell. They were our Valverwandtschaft, as the Germans phrase it, in one of their encompassing compound words. Chosen family, to go alongside given family. Maeve used to define one of the characteristics of Dublin and its population as always being on the verge. Sometimes she felt everyone she met was on the verge. Whether of falling in love or of marital breakup, of going down with something nasty or rising back up to glorious health, of a tremendous breakthrough or a calamitous collapse, whichever didn't matter much, what mattered was that they were on a precipice with something huge about to happen. A whole city on the verge. Of course, there are a few moments we manufacture for ourselves more precipitously on the verge than a world premiere. The adrenaline beforehand pumping through artists and spectators, the focus which the attention of so many sharpens, 
the terror of failure or the exhilaration of success swimming before everyone's eyes. All these factors combine to pump electricity into the air around you. Maybe there's just a natural fit between the temperament of Dublin and the natural temperament of these nights. Maybe they heighten each other to fresh cliff heights of On the Verge. My mind passed over the many first nights I had attended and been involved with in Ireland. The vividness of Declan Hughes's digging for fire in the project, which rampantly proclaimed a new, sexy and young Ireland shucking off the griefs and sorrows of the past. Our transfer of Billy Roach's Wexford trilogy to the opera house of his hometown, where it seemed the entire population had crammed themselves into the beautiful auditorium to witness themselves being related and understood and the mesmeric powers of Sebastian Barry's White Woman Street, which we transferred to the Peacock, where the actors' grizzled faces and Sebastian's weather-beaten words were enough to transport the audience to a Wild West landscape, a suspension of disbelief which somehow survived one entire bit of scenery falling over. And I remembered the first night of my production of Philadelphia Here I Come in the Gaiety in 2010, an encounter backstage between Maeve and Brian Friel came sharply to mind. Down a long corridor they inched towards each other, Maeve stooping and Brian shuffling. As they approached one another, they pulled themselves a little upright. "'We're doing all right, aren't we, Brian?' said Maeve cheerily. "'Maeve, we're both,' and then an extremely rude word, rasped Brian. It would be hard to imagine a better summary of their different world views." And after every first night of exemplary exhilaration, much drinking in the bar, then mayhem in the Trocadero restaurant, then retiring to some unfortunate's home, then all spilling out at dawn to dissipate energy and excitement in lonely walks into a sea breeze. There are few places that know how to engender and enjoy a memorable first night like Dublin. The night the birds gate-crashed the opera house has entered Wexford folklore. I remember it all too well because I was there on the eve of the new millennium. It was the opening of the annual Wexford Opera Festival, and not just another night at the opera. Aficionados throughout the world have flocked in their thousands to Wexford every October since 1951 for the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see little-known works by famous composers. The 700 or so tickets for the premiere at the Theatre Royal in 1999, much like any other year, were like gold dust, having sold out months in advance. The tiny opera house on High Street, until its demolition in 2005, was squeezed between terraced housing like the Rover's Return in Coronation Street. For broadcasting purposes, the premiere is an occasion primed to run like clockwork. The opera starts at 8 sharp. Latecomers are not admitted. One of the best vantage points for the backstage staff of the theatre to see the spectacular fireworks which launched the Wexford Festival half an hour before curtain up was from the roof of the Opera House, 
which rose over the harbour town. They gained access via a door, which was left ajar. But they were not alone. Roosting among the nooks and crannies of the old 19th century roof were the town's starlings, black as ink and invisible in the darkness. Nobody had forewarned them about the fireworks, which erupted like Vesuvius half an hour before the cast of the Queen of Sheba took to the stage. The explosions in the night sky were greeted by a tremendous roar from the thousands of men, women and children assembled on the key front. Startled, the starlings scrambled like a flying squadron and took refuge in the Theatre Royal, which they accessed through the door left open on the roof. Inside, they would have discovered that the ceiling of the old Theatre Royal was conveniently crisscrossed by four wooden beams, a perfect place to roost above the stalls. The beams were high, warm and dry, and out of harm's reach from the fireworks. The starlings, because it was way past their bedtime, were so unobtrusive that nobody in the theatre below, which was slowly filling up, realised they were there. Best of all, they had a bird's-eye view of the stage directly below. Before long, conductor Claude Schnitzler assumed his position above the orchestra in the sunken pit. The lights were abruptly dimmed and a hush settled upon the theatre. After a rousing Aaron Levine by the National Symphony Orchestra of Ireland, the overture to the Queen of Sheba came and went. So far, so quiet. Until midway through the first aria by Cornelia Helfrich in the title role, the starlings stared, and they behaved the way all garden birds do when they hear singing. They sang back. It is not commonly known that starlings are related to minor birds, which means they are gifted at mimicry. A cacophony of warbling and shrills, quite beautiful in starling language, began to rain down from on high. There was, too, the occasional deposit, bird confetti, you might say, which in some cultures is supposed to bring good luck. The audience, well-versed in sitting motionless through hour upon hour of opera, brave to chirping, and whenever the starlings let loose, they continued to sit with indifference and commendable stiff upper lip. There was, naturally, the odd chuckle and eyes raised to the heavens. Schnitzler ploughed gamely on in the best traditions of show business, but it couldn't have been easy for a conductor whose regular haunt was Opry National de Paris. The birds expressed a bias for the German mezzo-soprano Cornelia Helfricht, making her Wexford debut in front of the world's most unforgiving opera critics. When an aria finished, the birds chirruped enthusiastically. There was no let-up for the entire four acts of the opera. The starlings interrupted the score at will, all the while dispensing good luck onto the shoulders of expensive gowns and black tie attire, 100 feet below. Finally, after the Queen of Sheba's paramour took an age to expire in a sandstorm, the opera was over. But the singing, however, wasn't. The starlings chirped away and continued to dispense their charity. Never before did the theatre oil empty with such urgency. There's no easy way to remove starlings from an opera house, but suffice to say that a day later, and before the second night of the opera festival, they were persuaded to vacate their ornate perch.
On Tuesdays and Thursdays, directly after the 11 o'clock sus, our nuns switched classes. Sister Dominica gathered up her books and glided out through the glass partition that separated the little classroom from the big room as Sister Alton, who taught the infant half of the school, struggled into our classroom with her piano accordion already strapped onto her small, stout frame. She carried a roll of charts onto which she had painstakingly transcribed the notation and words of whatever song she was going to teach us that day. Her repertoire ranged from quaint, old-fashioned songs like My Sweet Little Alice Blue Gown to patriotic ballads that celebrated the 1798 rebellion. As a lot of the 1798 action was centred in Wexford, there were plenty of songs that commemorated local heroes and places. The Boys of Wexford was one that captured my imagination as it seemed to celebrate a young woman preparing to abandon her petticoats and her family's political affiliations to fight with the rebels. In comes the captain's daughter, the captain of the Yos, saying, Brave united Irish men will ne'er again be foes. A thousand pounds I'll give you and fly from home with thee and dress myself in man's attire and fight for liberty. But I was disappointed that there was no further mention of this feisty young woman as the rest of the verses dealt with the Battle of Vinegar Hill with lots of pike action and the taking and subsequent loss of New Ross and Wexford Town. I hummed the chorus on the road home from school. We are the boys of Wexford who fought with heart and hand, not wasting any time wondering what the girls of Wexford were up to in 1798. And if you'd asked me, I probably would have guessed that they were doing housework. Essential, but so boring and mundane that no one bothered writing a song about it. It's only in recent years that I discovered what some Wexford women were doing during the summer of the ill-fated rebellion. Elizabeth Richards was 20 years old when the rebellion broke out and she lived with her sister and their widowed mother at Potaspic Manor. Despite belonging to a very liberal Protestant family, Elizabeth was not impressed when she discovered that some of her relatives had joined United Irishmen. Terrified by rumours that all Protestants would be massacred if they didn't immediately convert to Catholicism, Elizabeth wrote in her journal in June 1798 how she and her mother walked to Wexford Town and consulted with a father, Corrin, who assured them that this would not happen. And Elizabeth assured him that she would die a martyr before she would abandon her Protestant faith. Meanwhile, a couple of miles away, Jane Adams and her two teenage daughters were spending the summer with Jane's sick father in Somerset House in Drina. Like Elizabeth Richards, Jane considered that Harvey and Coakley, two gentlemen of good fortune, had taken leave of their senses to lead a rebellion against the Crown. Every moment becomes more frightful, she wrote to a relative. The North Cork Cavalry are all put to death and the unfortunate soldiers' wives are screaming through the streets of Wexford. Enniscorthy is burned and the inhabitants are pouring into Wexford. Women of fortune, half-dressed, with their children on their backs and in their arms, are endeavouring to get on board ship. I am told there was never a more dreadful scene than Wexford exhibits. Nevertheless, when Jane discovered that her brother had been jailed by the rebels, she walked the five miles to Wexford town, faced down a drunken throng, sweet-talked the ones she described as more gentlemanly-looking, and negotiated the release of her brother 
who had been pitch-capped and driven insane by his head wounds. Jane's detailed letter describes how she spent the following weeks nursing her father and brother, looking after her daughters and doing everything she could to prevent the house being burned down. At one point, she gave shelter to an injured rebel and arranged for him to be seen by his priest. To calm the priest's nerves, and possibly her own, she and her daughter Susan sang the Sicilian hymn to the Virgin over and over and over again. And finally, after negotiating with the ship's captain, she managed to secure safe passage for herself and her family and got them safely back to Dublin. 16-year-old Dinah Goff of Hortown House, who helped her Quaker parents provide food and medical aid for both sides of the conflict, also left an eyewitness statement. Despite having their cattle and sheep taken and their horses stolen and ill-treated, the family and servants of the Goff household worked day and night to keep the rebel camp provided with food while also managing to look after the Crown forces. One night a mob attacked the house and Dinah and her sisters were terrified that the men had wicked designs on their virtue. But some of the rebels repaid the kindness of the Quaker family by turning the mob away. Through the long summer of death and mayhem, the Goff's strong religious beliefs sustained them. But when her father died later that year, Dinah believed that the conflict had hastened his death. Elizabeth, Jane and Dinah were not on the right side of the conflict, so no ballads were written to praise their courage, their strength of will and resilience. And we're lucky they left their own letters and diaries to remind us that her story is as important as his. A few years ago, after much resistance, I acquired a travelling companion, the sat-nav voice. For a long time, I hadn't trusted that an electronic voice could guide me safely on my journey. Up until then, I always checked a paper map to figure out where I was going. But maps and the whole fold-out-the-paper, track-the-journey and fold-the-paper-back technique became bothersome when I had to make a snap decision. So then I started Googling my destination on my laptop, chose a starting point or Melton to wherever and the fastest route. This route crosses a country border. This route has tolls. Then I would print off the map and write out the directions and highlight the motorways, junctions and the exact exit to take at every roundabout on the way. I'd leave the A4 pages on the passenger seat as I drove off. Sometimes, if my son happened to be with me, he would find Google Maps, call out the directions. He would say to me, You know, Ma, you should try to use maps on your phone. There is something generational about learning from my son. Growing up, I was used to the elders 
handing down knowledge. Then it became my turn. I was supposed to do the teaching, but the whole electronic world took off and I was as clueless as a child again. Why don't you use Google Maps on your phone, Ma? Eventually, I gave in. We didn't have a great start. I was driving through Dublin, heading towards an apartment building in Island Bridge. I turned too soon. The voice said to me, turn east, as I drove on the Chapel Lizard bypass. I ignored her, and she said, turn east. I said, I don't know which way east is. Turn east. She became more and more demanding. Turn east, turn east, turn east. I was shouting at her, I don't know east. Turn east, turn east, turn east. You aren't helping me. Eventually, I was able to turn and go back up the bypass. I calmed down and the Google voice calmed down. I reached my destination and had a strong cup of coffee. A son of mine asked me recently what was the name of a new coffee shop in Derry. I told him, and then instinctively I started to give him directions. You drive up Shipkey Street and around the Diamond, past Austin's. Remember, they had the restaurant on the top floor. Around to the next road, down past the nerve centre. Years ago, we went to the auditions there for parts for a short movie. And then you drive down through the walls. I started to give those directions, but stopped. All my son needed was the name of the coffee shop. He would check the rest online. And I thought, the way we give directions can be so personal. Some people give directions by name in churches and holy wells, and other guides by names of pubs. One of our sons, when he was a teenager, would have named all the sports shops, clubs and pitches along the way. There have been times when we've stopped and asked a stranger for directions, and we were sent the wrong way. And yet, I used to trust the word of a random stranger at the side of the road more than a sat-nav voice. Slowly, the art of giving verbal directions, and soon, maps, just like phone books and postcards, maybe will quietly disappear. I gradually got used to the Google Voice, even though there are times when we fall out, like when she keeps saying, reroute, reroute, reroute when I know she is wrong. I have come to realise how helpful she is if I get lost on a journey. A few months ago, I was driving to a school in Belfast. I had plenty of time, as long as I was travelling along the correct route. Coming into Belfast city centre, along the M2, the voice clearly told me, take junction 1A. But I turned too soon. I realised immediately that I was wrong. I was getting lost in Belfast, a place that is unknown to me, and I was going to be late. My heart quickened. Should I pull in? Should I check a map? And then the voice spoke, guiding me. Go straight. Take the next right. Take the next left. Join the A12. As she was guiding me, my body warmed out from panic mode. I listened to her. She was calm and clear. It felt like she was holding my hand, reassuring me that we were going to be okay. I was very quickly back on the correct road and heading in the right direction.
In that moment, myself and the voice became friends. And I will be taking her with me again soon when I head off in new directions. On this morning's programme, we heard Knocking the Church by Brian Farrell. Twill Shorten the Winter was by Margaret Galvin. On the Verge, Memorable First Nights in Dublin by Dominic Dromgool. Like a Bird on a Beam by Tom Mooney. Elizabeth, Dinah and Jane, Three Women of 1798 by A.M. Cousins. And Google Guidance was by Denise Blake. The music was Going Home, sung by Eilish Kennedy. La Donna e Mobile, from Verdi's Rigoletto, sung by Andrea Bocelli. From Handel's Messiah, The Lord Gave the World, performed by the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields Chorus, live in Dublin in 1992. A duet from the 1999 Wexford Opera Festival production of Goldmark's Queen of Sheba, sung by Mauro Nicoletti and Cornelia Helfricht, with the RTE National Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Claude Schnitzler. And O Sanctissima, also known as the Sicilian Mariner's Hymn by the Singing Nuns. Dominic Dromgoul's new book, Astonish Me, First Nights That Changed the World, is published by Profile Books. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. And you can listen back at rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. For more from Miscellany, see rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.